So we've been making comments for five years now. That's over 100 episodes and counting. And our plan? Well, it's to keep making more seasons, even more episodes. And when I say we, I don't just mean the Commons team. I'm including you, our listeners and supporters. We can't make this show without you. We can't keep bringing you exceptional reporting every week without your support. We want to make it as easy as possible for you to become a Canadaland supporter. So from now until the end of May, we have a special deal for our listeners. Sign up now for just $2 a month for the next six months. You'll get access to all the episodes of Commons one week early and ad-free, as well as exclusive bonus content from all of our shows. There's discounts on merch, tickets to our live events, and so much more. This is a limited-time offer, and it's a pretty great deal that helps support our journalism. Just go to canadaland.com join or click the link in your show notes to become a supporter today. This episode contains some discussion of sexual violence, so it may not be suitable for all listeners. When we spoke to Angelica Chalk in December of last year, she was on the run. The government of Guatemala had declared a state of siege because of anti-mining protests, and Angelica and her family were targets. Como digo, verdad? Eh... I've been really mad lately, that's the truth, because the state of Guatemala, with the support of the police and the army, they come to defend the mining company instead of defending us, the native citizens of the land. We spoke to Angelica through a translator. For Angelica Chalk and the people of El Astor, Guatemala, the last 60 years have been like history is repeating itself. A Canadian mining company comes in, There's been many of them. They have different names, but the end result has always been the same. Everyone has heard of the news of the violence that the Canadian mining company here has committed in my territory, in our Mayakachi territory. I say this because in the 60s, 70s, 80s, Since the armed conflict, we've been suffering because of the Canadian company. In the 1960s, the first Canadian mining company began to build a massive open pit mine in the community of El Estor, Guatemala. Many of the indigenous Maya Kekchi people opposed the project. But the company and Guatemala's military dictatorship wouldn't stand for such opposition. There have been many murders There was one in particular that I remember because the daughter of this man, uh, she's uh, my sister defender. Her name is Anna Vac, and her father, Pablo Vac, was murdered by the army and the mining company. In 1981, Guatemalan police officers kidnapped and murdered Pablo Bach, and when they abducted him, they were riding in a truck owned by the mining company. The first Canadian company left Guatemala in the 1980s. But that cycle of violence would begin again 20 years later. It was a different mining company this time, but the tactics they employed were the same. And Helica would learn that truth in 2007, when the mine security, along with the police and the military, came to evict nearby villages. In 2007, 
In 2007, the company entered our communities early in the morning when our people are still resting. The company came early when people were sleeping. Then they came, they started the evictions, they started destroying structures and burning the houses. It's so sad, it's so painful to remember all that happened in 2007. The invaders turned their homes to ash. They kicked the villagers off of their land, offering them no place to go. And 11 women from a village called Lote Ocho, Spanish for Lot 8, alleged that they were brutally raped. The evictions were like that. They were really hard, very violent. The second Canadian company sold to a third one, but the violence didn't stop. The bad days had returned. Pablo Bach, the man who was killed in 1981, had a son also named Pablo. 30 years after his father's death, he too protested against the mine. And just like his father, he was assassinated. Sometimes the repression would lessen for a moment, but it was always sure to return. Over the next few years, the Maya Kekchi people would rebuild their villages, only for them to be burned down again. And Helica's husband, a community leader, was murdered by the Canadian Mining Company. Her son's life was threatened. Her nephew was beaten to death. Her home and the homes of her children and siblings have been raided again and again. La casa de Luis Adolfo fue allanada. Luis Adolfo's house was raided. Victor Ramiro's house was raided. Angelita's house was also raided. These are all my children. And that hurts, that makes me cry, because we don't have luxury mansions. My house was also raided. This was about 5.30 in the morning when it was still dark. So our houses, the streets in our community, everything was full of military, anti-riot police, full of military commandos, patrol cars everywhere. It was horrible. I don't think they even do that against narco-traffickers. And it hurts to think uh, of my grandchildren that were taken out of bed by the military. And when they woke up and they saw the military there yelling, and, and they said, please, please don't kill my mommy. Por favor, por favor, no maten a mi mommy. How can that not hurt to hear those children's voices? A quien no le va a doler escuchar esas voces de esos niños? The names of the companies might change, but that's the only thing that does. This is what happens when you oppose the interests of Canadian mining companies abroad. It was true in the 1960s, and it's still true today. Over the course of 60 years, Three different Canadian mining companies have caused misery in El Estor, Guatemala. For Angelica's family, the mine has been a source of immense grief. Close family members have been murdered. They've been harassed by the police, the military, and the courts. And their suffering is all part of a bigger story. It's not happening just in El Estor. Canadian mining companies are pariahs around Guatemala and in much of the world. And it's no coincidence that some of the most brutal extractive companies in the world are headquartered in Canada. So why 
does Canada allow this to happen? And is mining, by its very nature, a violent industry? I'm Archie Mann, and from Canada Land, this is Commons. Angelica Chalk's son, Jose Ich, was there when his father, Adolfo, was kidnapped by the Canadian Mining Company. Here he is speaking to CTV's W5. When they killed my dad, all the people came to try to save him, but they started to shoot again. And when I came in to see my dad, they started to shoot me, I was, and I got to get up and I run. I knew Adolfo. I'd met him at some of the meetings in 2007 and 2008, these community meetings. My name's Graham Russell. I am the director of an organization called Rights Action. Graham is also the co-editor of the recently published book, Testimonio, Canadian Mining in the Aftermath of Genocides in Guatemala. Adolfo was increasingly known in the region as a very measured, soft-spoken, but empowering, respected community leader. But by the time that Adolfo was killed in 2009, it was almost not surprising to anyone because he was the community leader that many other communities in the region looked to. Adolfo Ich was murdered by a man named Minor Padilla, who was the head of security for Hud Bay Minerals, a Toronto-based mining corporation. But Adolfo's murder is only one of many acts of repression perpetrated by a series of Canadian mining companies in the El Astor region of Guatemala. El Astor is in the far east of Guatemala and sits on the north side of Lake Isabel. Lake Isabel is beautiful lake feeds out into the Atlantic Ocean. The municipality of El Astor actually has about 60 rural villages spread out. It's a vast swath of land. And then there's a mountain range there that sort of curves along the north side of Lake Isabel, which is where all the minerals are at and where all this terrible story plays itself out. It's part of the Kekchi Maya world. My name is Catherine Nolan. I'm a geographer, and I'm also the chair of the Geography, Earth, and Environmental Science program at the University of Northern British Columbia. Catherine is the other co-editor of Testimonio, along with Graham Russell. Many people live in high mountain communities made up of tightly knit families and communities who've suffered a lot over the years, who are deeply connected to the land the mountains, the rivers. The Kekchi Maya world is on the shores of Lake Isabel and and all along the Rio Dulce towards the Caribbean coast. The Kekchi world is extremely hot and humid and completely lush. So the region is rich in resources in terms of it used to be a region that would have sustained the population because the soil is so rich. When Europeans arrived 500 years ago, many Maya Kekchi communities were forced out of their homes and their land was stolen. By the early 1900s, the biggest beneficiary of this theft was the United Fruit Company. And so the land was transformed from this indigenous world of self-sustaining communities to one that became, you know, banana plantations as far as the eye could see. Guatemala was literally a banana republic. 
the Mayakechi people were pushed further and further up into the mountains. But Guatemalans were increasingly frustrated with the state of their country. And in 1944, they voted to change things. I don't think it's an exaggeration to say that fundamentally Guatemala has only had one period of democracy, <laughs> perhaps in its entire history. For one decade, from 1944 to 1954, Guatemala had a functioning participatory democracy. That ended with an American-backed coup that installed a military dictatorship that would rule Guatemala for the next half century. These governments worked for the interests of the wealthy landowner class and large multinational corporations. And by the 1960s, that included Canadian mining companies. Nickel was discovered in Ella Store, in the mountainous region that the Maya Kekchi had been forced onto. Within a short period of time, the International Nickel Corporation, known as INCO, became interested in the region. INCO was for much of the 20th century the world's largest nickel producer. At one point, it controlled nearly 90% of nickel deposits outside of the Soviet bloc. INCO received the rights to a huge swath of land in the area. Part of it was outright ownership and part of it was a massive concession of something like 280 square kilometers of land all on the north side of Lake Isabel, up into the mountains and beyond. And like in a lot of other Latin American countries, the Canadian government succeeded in pressuring Guatemala to rewrite its mining laws. It's always done in the name of strengthening the rule of law, strengthening good governance, strengthening transparency. But the rewriting of the mining laws is always to favor in enhancing access by foreign mining companies and investors to the resources of the country in question. INCO, and by extension Canada, were now major power players in this small Central American country. The 1960s were also the beginning of a time of horror for Guatemala. It's when the country's 36-year-long civil war began. A small armed resistance sprang up in Guatemala, especially in areas with indigenous majorities. And the government used this as an excuse to institute a decades-long reign of terror. Independent commissions have called this a genocide against Mayan people. And what's important to understand is how the Canadian-owned Inco mine and the genocidal military dictatorships that ruled Guatemala worked hand in hand. Even when the mine was first being proposed in the 1960s, many Guatemalans, especially in Guatemala City, fought against it. So there was huge opposition in the capital city. Intellectuals, activists, certain politicians formed study groups and commissions to denounce the, the changing of the constitution, the rewriting of the mining laws, the giving out of this concession. And there was very serious repression, and two people were outright assassinated. Once the mine was approved, the military began to target the El Astor region. Thousands of innocent peasants were murdered. So the repression moved from the capital city in the 60s to on the ground in the Maya Kekchi territories in the 70s, when they started to have to forcibly evict the Maya Kekchi people from their lands. The ostensible reason for this violence was to fight back against the communist guerrillas, but it had the added benefit of clearing the way for Inco to begin constructing the mine. They had a nine-hole golf course out there. They had a, a private club with a swimming pool for company workers. They moved in for a long time and made it very comfortable for uh, their workers and their staff. And these were gated communities, of course. And the collaboration between INCO and the Guatemalan military intensified. By the 70s, INCO had a partnership with the local military 
and they set up a military outpost, not a base, but an outpost on Inco property, literally on Inco property. And military planes would come and go, military helicopters would come and go, and they had living quarters on Inco property in Elastor. The military's repression overlapped with the needs of, of Inco to carry out evictions of community because they were trying to forcibly evict people from land. After the Guatemalan Civil War came to an end in the 1990s, the United Nations was invited in to conduct a truth commission on what happened during those years. And one thing that we know from the Truth Commission, only one international company was named as committing crimes during this time. They very specifically name INCO. And they set out six different cases, and three of which were in the the Elastor region, where INCO cooperated or participated directly with the local military that was based on their property to carry out acts of repression including killings and forced disappearances of people. These included the execution of four people in 1978 and the abduction and murder of Pablo Bach in 1981. This was all happening at a time when Inca was celebrated in Canada as a corporate leader and was receiving subsidies from the Canadian government. But in 1981, amidst falling nickel prices, Inca decided to abandon the mine. Inco mothballed the operation in 1981. The plant actually only operated for a year and a half or so. So life sort of went back to normal for the Kekchi people because there was a skeleton sort of security crew, all the staff left, all the, 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 the nine-hole golf club shut down, and they just closed down the processing plant. In the 1990s, Guatemala went through a long-awaited peace process. The peace process itself was an extraordinary overcoming of fear, overcoming of trauma. People in the mid-90s were beginning to speak about the massacres for the first time in 12, 13, 14 years. And through the mid-90s, there was a series of very serious peace accords that dealt with racism in the country. They dealt with land tenure in the country. They dealt with the economic model in the country. They dealt with what to do with the millions of people who had been forcibly evicted from their lands. But much of the substance of the peace accords was never implemented. And even then, Canadian mining interests were plotting their return to the country. In 1997, INCO executives helped redraft Guatemala's mining laws. And not long after, some of those same people would once again open up the Elastor mine, beginning the cycle anew. Lote Ocho, Spanish for Lot 8, is a small Maya Kekchi community. It's out of Ellis store. It's, it's driving past the processing plant that sits right on the shores of Lake Isabel, a road that is gravel and dirt. They're high up above on the mountains overlooking the, you know, the Polachique Valley that, that follows the Polachique River past uh, Ellis store. It's a small community of about, I think, 100 homes originally. Lote Ocho is west of the mine site, but the new owners of the mine, Sky Resources, a Vancouver-based company, argued that the land belonged to them. Sky Resources was a company founded by former Inco executives, and its sole purpose was to take over the mine in Elastor. Sky Resources was a one-trick pony. It was a company with one asset in the world, 
This was like nightmare rerun number two or three for the Kekchi people of the Elastor region. Sky Resources employed similar tactics to what Inco had done a generation before. From 2006 until 2008, Sky Resources would regularly fly helicopters over Lote Ocho. The company intended to use this as a psychological terror tactic. And we know that's what the company intended because, thanks to a lawsuit in Canadian court and reporting by Max Binks Collier in The Intercept, some emails that executives were sending to one another are now public. Here's what William Enrico, Sky's VP of Operations, sent to his colleagues on October 12, 2006. Quote, Cesar advised me to have more flights, especially helicopter. It may be good if our regular flights did some circling over the important areas for psychological impact. This shouldn't cost us anything extra. The Cesar he's talking about is Cesar Montez, an ex-Guria who is now advising the mining company. According to those company records, Sky Resources was determined to get an eviction order against the Lote Ocho community. And an email from that same Sky executive in December 2006 stated that, quote, we'll need pressure on the Puerto Barrio judge, and that, quote, we have this arranged. Emails show that Sky tried to use their political connections to pressure the Minister of the Interior and even the President of Guatemala. It always used to be that we were told that, that we couldn't know these things, that that can't really be happening, that really, you know, the Canadians, you know, they're good guys. I'm not a lawyer, but seeing the internal communications brings a whole new dimension to this. Sky Resources got their eviction order. And in January 2007, they moved in force. Here's Angelica Chalk again. These communities are out in the middle of nowhere, like Lote Ocho. They're isolated. Then the military, the police, the security, they came. Around 800 security personnel came to evict the community. These were a mix of police, military, and mine security. This is a long way in for 800 forces to come in up into the mountains. You know, it'd be like a three-hour, four- or five-hour walk from L.S. Store. Stephen Schnoor, a Canadian documentary filmmaker, happened to be there at the time. Here he is speaking to CTV's W5. They came in the middle of the night with tear gas and no eviction orders. Oof. It was intense. You had close to a thousand police and soldiers facing off against unarmed community members. Incredibly tense. The, the tension was totally palpable. I mean, there'd be, you'd be on, on the road and you hear shots being fired in the distance, have no idea who's shooting, what's going on. Their homes were torn down or burned to the ground. Here's a woman yelling at the security forces during the eviction. And this comes from a short video by Stephen Schnoor. Here's what she's saying. We want the company to leave. We don't want it here. We don't want the company anymore. Look what the company is doing. Eviction. And our children? Where will we go now? To the wilderness? And 11 women claim that security forces gang-raped them that day. What they described in detail, painful detail, was that many of them had been raped by 
multiple men and they were able to identify them by the uniforms they were wearing. So the military, police and private security of the Canadian Mining Company. Internal emails suggest that Sky Resources was paying upwards of $140,000 to the Guatemalan army and police in connection with the evictions. In 2008, Sky Resources merged with yet another Canadian mining company, Hud Bay Minerals. There's still a lull in activity. They continue with the reparation work of the living compound, the fixing up of the, the mine processing plant, etc. But tensions don't start to build again until mid-2009. On the morning of September 27, 2009, there was an attempt to evict a community called Las Nubes. And so when word got out of the Las Nubes' attempted eviction to make way for the mining company, protests began down on the main road in the town of El Astor. There's sort of the town centre of El Astor, and literally where the town centre ends, it's company-claimed land that begins right there. And the company's offices, the company living compound and a restaurant compound is right there. A smaller protest took place in the community of La Union. The La Union community is actually tucked in behind, physically in behind this compound. La Union is the community where Angelica Chalk lived with her husband, Adolfo Ich, who was at the time a prominent community leader opposed to the mine. It was also the home to a young man named Herman Chubchok. Herman was watching a soccer game at the nearby field. And then two company trucks came onto the soccer field, so everyone started to disperse. The company trucks with company security guards in them. All of a sudden, everyone just sort of started running away from the soccer field out onto the road. And Herman sort of was one of the last to leave. Here's Herman speaking about the shooting to rights action. Here's what he's saying. When I saw security guards pointing their guns at people, I turned my head, and there was Minor Padilla pointing his gun at me. Minor Padilla, by the way, was the head of security for Hud Bay Minerals. I turned around and tried to run away, and that's when I heard the gunshot. I just fell face down on the ground, At that moment, I couldn't feel my body. I couldn't move at all. Had I known what would happen, I never would have come to play. It's just one of those happenstance things that the the bullet left him paralyzed for the rest of his life. That's not where the violence ended. The Hud Bay trucks continued toward the protest at La Union. And as witnesses say, The company security guards were firing shots into the air above the head of the villagers to try and sort of push them back. And then Adolfo Ish is a community leader. And when he heard what was going on, he was somewhere else in the community. He went running over to to try and calm down the situation. And he walked right into the middle of this mini protest and sort of tried to calm things down. And according to the allegations, he was hit with machete blows and they dragged him off through a hole in the, in the chain link fence, and his body was found later both with machete wounds and with gunshot wounds. Here's Angelica Chalk speaking to us about her husband. And on September 27, 2009, 
During the eviction of our community, he was murdered by the head of security of the mining company, Hat Bay Minerals. That's when I started my path looking for justice against the Hat Bay company. Me personally, I made the decision that it was important to legally denounce this. It was important to tell people what foreign companies come to do in our territory. And that's when I started my search for justice. After the killing of Adolfo, Angelica almost had a year of just, you know, mind-numbing suffering and trauma and recovery. But into 2010, she was like, all right, I'm acting now. And so she has grown into becoming one of these extraordinary leaders in her own right. Angelica, Herman, and the 11 women who are raped at Lote Ocho would go on to do something that up until then had never worked for the victims of Canadian mining companies. They took their fight to Canada itself. As we've told you many times in the course of this series, around 75% of the world's mining companies are headquartered in Canada. Here's Richard Popluck, the South African and Canadian journalist who we spoke to for our last episode about Barrick Gold in Papua New Guinea. Canada offers enormous incentives for multinationals, particularly in the extractive sector, to do really, really bad things abroad because it has no policing regimen. There's almost no country on earth where it is better to set up a junior mining company that has very, very few reporting requirements and has very, very few obligations to state what it's doing abroad and why than Canada. Canada is the ultimate black hole for the extractive sector. And one of the most important legal arguments that mining companies use to avoid responsibility in Canada is jurisdiction. Mines in foreign countries are rarely owned directly by the Canadian mining company. Instead, they are owned by a domestic subsidiary that is in turn owned by the parent company. That little bit of legal distance has enormous consequences for people who want to hold these companies to account for their alleged abuses. Canadian courts have ruled over and over again that these matters have to be dealt with in the courts of the country where they took place. Here's Graham Russell again. The courts ended up throwing out the cases, saying, no, we're not going to hear these in Canada. You have to go to the country where the harms took place. But with the help of lawyers Murray Klippenstein and Corey Wanless, Angelica, Herman, and the 11 women from Lote Ocho decided to sue Hudbe in Canadian courts. In the first three years of the lawsuits, from 2010 to 2013, were fundamentally about that jurisdictional issue. Would a Canadian court accept the lawsuits or not? Hudbay absolutely denied the accusations. Here's Hudbay's vice president, David Bryson, speaking to CTV's W5 in 2010 about the allegations that Hudbay security murdered Adolfo each. We've conducted uh, a very detailed investigation, including with independent eyewitness members of the uh, events that happened on September 27th, and we've concluded that our security staff were not involved in the death of Mr. Each. And in the course of your investigation, did you interview Adolfo's widow, his son, or community members who say they witnessed the assault? It wouldn't be appropriate for me to comment on uh, the uh, results of our investigation. But it's 
appropriate to tell me that you've reached your conclusion and that you've interviewed people? I can't comment, and it would be very inappropriate for me to comment on the government's investigation. Witnesses, including Adolfo and Angelica's son, Jose, stated that it was Minor Padilla, the head of HUD Bay security force, that murdered Adolfo each. Padilla had been an officer in the Guatemalan military, and in the years immediately following Adolfo's murder, he avoided arrest. From September of 2009, when the, the acts occurred, he was living freely and openly for another three years. He wasn't captured by the police. In their pleadings in court, Hud Bay Minerals specifically denied that Minor Padilla had killed Adolfo each. They claimed that Jose had been coerced into lying about what he saw by his mother Angelica. They praised Padilla's, quote, exemplary record as their chief of security and stated definitively that he hadn't been carrying a gun that day. They denied that Padilla had shot and paralyzed Herman Chalk, though they didn't provide an alternate explanation. And they denied that Hudbay security had raped any of the 11 women during the eviction at Lote Ocho. Now, in the normal course of events, that's where the story would end. The lawsuits in Canada would get thrown out, and the police in a place like Guatemala, who work hand-in-hand with mine security and are often paid directly by the mining company, would sit on their hands. But in 2013, a judge ruled that the cases could indeed be heard in Canadian courts. The lawsuits are ongoing to this day. And even more extraordinary is what happened in Guatemala. Minor Padilla was put on trial. At first, He was acquitted in 2017, but that acquittal was overturned. Here's Catherine Nolan again. Eventually, after again the persistence of the family members and communities and the lawyers involved in this, working diligently to make the system work properly, meant that Minor Padilla, the former head of security for for Hud Bay Resources and, and HMI Nickel, the subsidiary, pled guilty to the, to the murder of Adolfo Ich, as well as the shooting and paralyzation of Herman Chub. Here's Angelica Chalk. Yes, for me, this was a great achievement after a tireless, exhausting fight. I have fought in the Guatemalan justice system. I think it was a just claim. I never said anything that was false. It took years for this process uh, here in Guatemala. It hit me really hard. It took a bit of my life. I think the only reason that that criminal trial proceeded at all in Guatemala was because the Hud Bay lawsuits in Canada were garnering more and more international attention. Hud Bay Minerals still denies that Minor Padilla is guilty of murder. In a recent statement to the CBC, they said that, quote, the plea agreement does not have any impact on Hud Bay's view of the facts in these cases and Hud Bay has not amended its pleadings. Now, all of this might sound like a happy ending, or as close to one as you can get under the circumstances. But next to nothing has changed on the ground in Ella store. In 2011, Hud Bay Minerals sold the mine to a Swiss company called Solway. But all the same cases of repression crop up again, forced evictions begin again, Targeting local community defenders begins again. And for speaking out, Angelica Chalk, Herman Chub, and the women of Lote Ocho have suffered immensely. When Minor Padilla was first acquitted, the courts went after Angelica's family. 
what that court also tried to do before he pled guilty was, again, criminalize that whole family to say that all of the family members who brought testimony to that case needed to be investigated for their role in, in going after minor Padilla. And so for continuing to speak out, many of them have been brought up on sort of almost completely made up charges. And what that forces them to do is to have to show up in court month after month to to show that they haven't left the region. It's attempt to kind of silence them so that they can't connect with broader movements across the country. And it's a threat to say that they might go to jail. And Angelica's family has faced even worse. I had been following the mining struggles in El Estor for a while. The family had put out some information about the incident, and that's how it first came to my attention. My name's Heather Geese. I'm a journalist and editor. I am currently managing editor of the NACLA Report on the Americas, and previously I was working as a freelance journalist mostly covering Central America. Heather reported on the killing of Hector Emmanuel Chalk Coos. Hector was Angelica's nephew. Hector Emmanuel Chalk Coos was an 18-year-old Maya Ketchi man. And in 2018, he was severely injured in an apparent beating. And he died soon after in the hospital. When Hector died, witnesses came forward to the family and said that they had heard the assailants who beat him make apparent references to Jose Ich. Jose Ich is Angelica and Adolfo's son. And so the family immediately thought that this was a case of mistaken identity and this was an attempted targeted killing of Jose Ich. And they they mistook Hector for Jose. And that was relevant because since Jose was a witness to his father's killing in 2009, he was a key witness in two cases, one in Guatemala and one in Canada. Heather spoke to Angelica shortly after Hector's murder. I asked her to tell me a little bit about Hector. She said that he was like a son to her. It sounded like the family was really close. She said Hector wanted to be a mechanic when he grew up. I found it quite remarkable speaking to her at the time because she expressed, as she has many times, you know, that this incident, the death and apparent um, murder of her nephew, just inspired her to continue this struggle, which is quite a remarkable position to take. No one in Guatemala has been arrested for Hector's murder. At the end of last year, Maya Kekchi community members protested, demanding that there finally be a proper community consultation about the mine. There was resistance for 20 or 21 days where they blocked the street, they blocked the passage of large trucks and any machinery that belonged to the company, but they let other people, other vehicles go by. This was met by extraordinary force on the part of the Guatemalan government. It declared a state of siege, which is uh, sort of akin to martial law, sent in hundreds of military and police troops, which came with a lot of repression, raids on media outlets and various civil society organizations, and also dozens of detentions. Mining critics were targeted. 
Angelica and Herman's homes were both raided. The husband of one of the plaintiffs in the Lote Ocho lawsuit was detained. So was Angelica's son. And during the state of siege that was so crushing, so big, and it's still there because we're under a stage of prevention now. Our compañeros, our comrades have been persecuted by the military and the anti-riot troops. We have also seen suspicious cars in our community. We have seen helicopters, army helicopters, and we have also seen drones over our homes day and night. These raids, like I said, they were really hard. There was so much trauma. So much trauma left behind, the fear, the trauma they caused on the children. The mining struggle in El Estor has lasted for 60 years. But El Estor is not the only place, even in Guatemala, with these kinds of stories. In the Western Highlands, a man was burned alive during a protest against the Marlin mine, owned by the Vancouver-based company Gold Corp. In the southeast, the private security of the Escobal mine shot into the crowd at an anti-mining protest. That mine was owned by another Vancouver company, Tahoe Resources. An opponent of the El Tambor mine, just northeast of Guatemala City, was shot to death after leaving a roadblock. That mine was owned by Toronto's Radius Gold. All of these issues have been brought to the attention of the Canadian government. The Canadian government has basically said... This industry has what they would call a voluntary code of conduct, that they want them to be good actors, they want them to be good players, they tell them, yes, you should follow the law, and and so on. And yet, at every turn, when they have had the opportunity to change those conditions, to change the way in which we deal with companies that are acting egregiously across the planet, uh, that nothing really on the Canadian side of things has changed If anything, they've been supported almost at all costs. Over the last decade, there have been a few victories in Canadian courts. The Hud Bay lawsuits are progressing. A similar case against Tahoe was settled out of court. The Supreme Court is allowing a case against Nevson Resources, who are alleged to have used slave labor in Eritrea, to proceed. But all of these are civil lawsuits. In so many of these instances, Canadian mining companies are being accused of assault, of rape, of murder. On the criminal law side of affairs, we still have zero, zero accountability. And that, for me, is the elephant in the room. We already have laws in this country to go after Canadian companies who engage in corruption abroad. But even those are rarely enforced. There is close to zero political will or energy in the, the Attorney General's office to, to put money and resources and political will behind a prosecutor's office to go after allegations of corporate corruption around the world, including Guatemala. But if we had criminal investigations that landed executives in jail, that landed members of the board of these companies in jail for corruption, just corruption, let alone (laughs) murder, repression, then things would change. In 2018, the Trudeau government promised to create a federal mining watchdog, But after intense lobbying from the industry, they gutted their plans and gave the office almost no powers whatsoever. A few years ago, freelance journalist Alex Vermin Green 
wrote that Canada is just three mining companies in a trench coat wearing a stupid hat and carrying a gun. And after doing this reporting for the last six months, it's hard not to feel that that is about right. Richard Popluck seems to agree, though he phrases it in a more sophisticated manner. I would argue that in many respects, Canada is much like the British Virgin Islands, the Cayman Islands, and other whitelisted countries in how many benefits it offers multinationals for doing bad things in faraway places. It has been so for decades, dating back to the beginning of the 20th century. So an enormous amount of responsibility forced to the Canadian state for what its multinationals are doing abroad. And without question, the entire conception of how corporate Canada behaves both in Canada and abroad needs to be reconceived and, frankly, regulated in a way that brings it up to 21st century standards. There's a question I've been asking myself this whole season. Is there something innately destructive about mining? Does the extractive industry necessarily lead to environmental destruction, bloodshed, sexual violence, and plunder? I asked Richard Popluck that question. I think to a degree, mining is inherently violent. I'm not sure in how many instances over the course of 5,000, 6,000 years that human beings have mined. There have been benevolent or communal or artisanal mining practices that have not been violent. If you are in the middle of the Democratic Republic of the Congo and the law in the country is that the national government owns all of the resources under the ground, you've never seen someone from the national government. You've never accrued any benefit from the national government. And yet you're not allowed on land that you consider to be your own. Disputes are bound to take place. And I think that is the key to how all of this stuff unfolds. Mines are enormously damaging to the environment, especially on an industrial scale. There's no other way to do it. There is no possible way under nation-state systems that we live right now that mining could come to be benevolent or, or non-violent in my conception. I don't see it. For Angelica Chalk and the other Mayan Kekchi people in Ella's store, the fight isn't over. He realizado mi resistencia es para toda Guatemala. My whole struggle, my resistance is for all of Guatemala because people are suffering not just in my territory. In Guatemala, exist- in Guatemala there are many Canadian companies and they have committed the same human rights violations against the people who are the rightful owners of the land. Many other defenders are being persecuted, just like I am. And Angelica wants to say something to the government of the faraway country that's allowed her land to be plundered and her people to be abused for the last 60 years. So my message, and I hope it gets to you clearly, and I hope it gets to the Canadian government clearly, 
We ask that there are laws that support the communities where your companies come to and that there are laws to receive any complaints there in Canada of any abuses committed and that there be justice. I have been doing this struggle for 12 years and still haven't received any justice. Llevo más de 12 años de buscar justicia y aún no se ha hecho justicia. That's your episode of Commons. If you like this episode, please support us. Click on the link in your show notes or go to commonspodcast.com and leave us a rating and review in Apple Podcasts. This is our final episode in our series on mining, and we hope that you enjoyed it. This episode relied on work done by Graham Russell, Catherine Nolan, Heather Geese, CTV's W5, Sandra Cuff, Stephen Schnoor, Max Binks Collier, and many, many others. A special thanks to Flavia Moreno, who very graciously helped us with the Spanish language translations. If you want to get in touch with us, you can tweet us at CommonsPod. You can also email me, arshi at canadaland.com. This episode was produced by me and Jordan Cornish. Our executive producer is Kieran Oudshorn. And our music is by Nathan Burley. If you like what we do, please help us make this show. Click on the link in your show notes or go to commonspodcast.com. This episode is brought to you in part by the Douglas Mattress. Now, I've said it before and I'll say it again. One of the best, and I mean the best things you can do for yourself, is to get a good quality mattress. The time is now, people. Douglas is giving our listeners a free sleep bundle with each mattress purchase. Get the sheets, pillows, mattress protector, and pillow protectors free with your Douglas purchase today. Visit douglas.ca slash CanadaLand to claim this offer. That's douglas.ca slash CanadaLand to claim this offer. When you make decisions for your company, you look for the no-brainers. If you have a lot of mailing to do, Stamps.com is the ultimate no-brainer. Use the Stamps.com mobile app to mail everything you need to keep your business running with up to 89% off USPS and UPS. Make the same no-brainer decision as over 1 million other businesses with Stamps.com. Use code PROGRAM for a special offer. That's stamps.com, code PROGRAM.